Our next speaker has done nothing less than pathbreaking work in the area of intellectual property. Uh, he, he probably could cons be considered the, the Satoshi of IT, if you will. He's an American uh, intellectual property lawyer, libertarian legal theorist. Uh, he's created the website, the Libertarian Standard. He's created an academic journal, the Libertarian Papers. He's, he's written a number of books, uh, including uh, my favorite, uh, Louisiana Civil Law Dictionary. But uh, probably <laughs> he is best known for uh, a book called uh, that really turned the libertarian world on its ear. This argument continues on, it rages on. He continues to debate any and all comers online. Uh, but he is, uh, well, this is the perfect time in the cyber world to have a lawyer in the house, and he is our lawyer in the house. Please help me welcome Stefan Kinsella. Uh, thanks very much, Doug. And, um, really glad to be here. I just flew in from Houston. Uh, I'd really like to thank Jeff for giving me the chance to speak on a non-IP topic, which I, I do enjoy. Um, so my topic today is on legal tender. Um, I'm gonna explain briefly uh, how I got interested in this topic, uh, and then go into some background. Uh, when I was in, in law school in 1989 or so, I was clerking at a firm in Baton Rouge. I was asked by the partner to research the question of whether it was legal or illegal to um, refuse to take a payment of cash uh, under legal tender law. So if you owe someone a million dollars and you bring them a briefcase full of cash, can they say, I refuse to accept that, that offer. I want you to write me a check instead. So I started researching what is legal tender. If you look at your dollar bills, it'll say, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. It's sort of a mysterious meaning. What exactly does that mean? Um, how much money do you have to pay to satisfy a debt? Um, so I started getting interested in it. A couple of years later, I was in graduate school in law in London, and I looked at the British pound notes, and they have other language, which says, Bank of England, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of five pounds or 10 pounds or whatever the note is. So um, like a smart ass, I walked down to the Bank of England one day in the middle of the financial district with a backpack dressed like a student, and I walked in the front door and I I, I asked, I said, can I redeem this for five pounds of whatever it is it's five pounds of? <laughs> and they said, do you have an appointment? I said, no. <laughs> um, so they sent me out and they said, you have to have an appointment to come into the Bank of England. Uh, so they said, you might want to visit the Bank of England Museum around the corner. So I walked around the corner, went to the Bank of England Museum. I was the only guy there and I started asking the curator these questions and he went to the back and he brought me a mimeographed, I think that's an old word for photocopy, right? A mimeographed sheet of uh, typewritten papers explaining why that language doesn't mean that they really have to give you five pounds of silver or whatever it meant. They, they claim that it just means that if you have an old note that's out of circulation now, we'll replace it. So five pound note, you get a new five pound note for it. So that's what that promise means. So, so over the years, I've, I've, totally, I've, I've always been puzzled by this mysterious language which is omnipresent and yet no one seems to understand what it means. Um, so as Bitcoin started heating up, I started thinking more and more about it, and so Jeff and I talked and we thought this might be uh, a good topic. So to research this, I researched a good deal of things. Um, probably three of the primary things I re relied on, and if you find this talk of interest, 
you might want to look at some of these. Guido Holzman has a fantastic lecture on the economics of legal tender laws uh, at the last Mises University. It's online. And I will post these slides on my website um, uh, later, so stephenkinsella.com, so feel free to look it up there. Uh, Hoppe has a great article, which I rely on heavily in this talk. And also, I found a 1903 fantastic old treatise on Google Books uh, on legal tender. Okay? Okay, so I'm going to back up for a second and try to put this legal tender issue in context before we get into the actual mechanics and issues of legal tender itself. Um, and this is drawing on the work of Hans Hammer Hoppe and others like Franz Oppenheimer. Uh, Franz Oppenheimer uh, argued that there's only two, two ways of creating wealth. One is the political means and one is the economic means. One is cooperative and peaceful and one is uh, coercive and, ex and exploitative. And this is what Hoppe argues as well. He basically points out that there are only two ways to acquire wealth in the world that we live in. Uh, one would be homesteading, production, and exchange. So you find, you appropriate a resource that's unowned in the world. You, you increase the sum total of wealth in the world and your wealth. Production means transforming these resources into more valuable configurations, so that's production. That's also a way of increasing wealth. And exchange is when two people exchange things that they own, and they're both better off after the transaction, so the sum total of wealth in the world increases that way as well. And then the second way is expropriating producers, appropriators, and homesteaders, and exchangers. That's the, uh, so the first method gives rise to productive enterprises like, the, uh, like firms and corporations and businesses. The second gives rise to governments and states. Now, if you think about private enterprise, uh, private industry, productive enterprises, their growth is constrained by a couple of things. Number one, they have to have consumer demand for what they're making, and there's competition in the market. So that's a constraint on the growth of private firms. But the growth of an exploiting firm like the state is constrained mostly by public opinion. And the reason is because by its nature it coerces people and creates victims. And by its nature it's a small portion of society. So you have a small minority dominating the larger, uh, the larger majority. So the only way they can get away with this is to somehow persuade um, the victims that the state is legitimate. Okay. So what is the state's goal? The state is a wealth maximizer just like we are. It just doesn't have any ethics. Um, the, so its goal is to, to uh, and by the way, I don't know if this crowd is entirely libertarian, but uh, that's fine. But you are listening to one, and in fact, I'm the, of the anarchist variety uh, that thinks the state should be totally abolished. Just, Libertarians here would know that already, but just fair warning. <laughs> um, so the state's goal is to maximize its wealth that it can exploit from, the, from, from its victims. And it tried to do this by engaging activities to increase its public legitimacy so that it gets away with it. There's two main things the state does. It engages in ideological propaganda, trying to persuade us that the world is not the way it really is, that taxes are really voluntary, that we would have chaos in the streets without the state, etc. And then the second thing the state does is it engages in a variety of redistribution measures which, by which it seeks to corrupt the people that it redistributes money to into supporting the state. Not just any redistribution will do, there are certain targeted types of redistribution that tend to work well for the state. Okay? Now, these include the monopolization of the production of law and security, police, defense, the courts, judicial system, also traffic, traffic and communication because the state can't go around robbing people uh, without control of the rivers, the roads, the mail, telecommunications, the internet. Um, also education, of course, which feeds back to the first purpose of ideological propaganda. So the state controls these things. And also the state redistributes state power itself, especially in the modern sense, uh, in democracy. 
So the bureaucracy is open to anyone who wants to apply for a job. So we're potentially all employers, employees of the state. And then by democracy, the state lets us believe that we're really the owners of the state. The state really is us. You'll hear this nonsense promoted by the state all the time. Or if you complain that the government just put your brother-in-law in jail for smoking marijuana, you know, people say, well, don't complain. You are the government. You know, thanks. Small consolation. The final piece is the monopolization, the seizure of control of money and banking. And in a way, this is the most important for the state. And this is where we're going to get to legal tender. This is the easy way the state has to increase income. If the state doesn't control money and banking, it has to get loans, it has to tax people, and that's difficult. Okay, so what does the state want in terms of control of money and banking? What it really wants is a pure fiat money monopolistically controlled by the state uh, so, that it, so that all barriers to counterfeiting are removed, so it can print as much money as it wants to. But the problem the state faces is that money arises in the free market without the state as a commodity like gold or silver. And then counterfeiting of such a money can be noticed by people. It won't work. Even the state can't get away with that. So the state really has to destroy the gold system, the silver and gold commodity money system, so that obstacles to counterfeiting are, are overcome or removed. Okay, so what, how does the state do this? It systematically does this. First, it, the minting of coins gets monopolized by the state. And one thing this does psychologically is labels for money like an ounce of gold or an ounce of silver are replaced gradually with state labels like dollar, uh, drachma, mark, whatever. So people start uh, stop associating what money is with a, 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 an amount of the commodity. And they, it's, it's a label that the state grants to money. And then the state encourages the use of money substitutes uh, like paper. Backed up by legal tender laws, which I will get to in more detail in a moment. Then the state monopolizes or capitalizes the banking system, as we see in America in the Federal Reserve. Then it nationalizes gold, as Roosevelt did in the 30s. And then cuts the tie to gold, as Nixon did, giving it unlimited counterfeiting power. Okay? But it's not completely unlimited because there's, not, there's more than one country in the world, more than one nation state. So all these countries have their own currencies, and if any one state inflates too much, then there's a a flight to other currencies. So the dominant state, namely the United States, uh, has an interest in dominating and controlling the world's international money system. And uh, over time, we'll try to institute either a single world currency that it controls or that its central bank controls, uh, or some kind of uh, subtle but hidden system of interlocking agreements under the UN or various treaties that gives it control of the, of the world's monetary system, which we see now. Um, Hans Hermann Hoppe's, you know, hypothesize that you know one day we'll have a new UN currency dominated by the US called the Phoenix or something like that. So you can see this coming. Okay, so now let's go back to legal tender. You see the role it plays in this process of state control of society and exploitation. So the word legal tender comes from the word tender, which comes from the Latin tender, meaning to stretch, right? Think of the word like your tendons in your body, stretch, or the English word extend. So the word tender means to, to stretch out or to offer, to make an offer, okay? like an offer to pay money. Okay? So the legal tender idea is, is a government rule or law that specifies that a given contractual obligation can be satisfied by the offer of a certain amount of money that the government declares to be legal tender, even if the contract uh, specifies otherwise. Okay? So if you have a contract to be paid in Swiss francs, uh, then 
the, the debtor can still pay in U.S. dollars if U.S. dollars are legal tender. Okay? Now, this, the idea that you can pay a contractual obligation in money is not necessarily statist. In fact, it makes a lot of sense for administrative purposes. This was, uh, let me go to the, this is a better version of that. Um, in, in, under, under the Roman law 2,000 years ago, uh, obligations were held to be satisfied by a certain sum of money. Okay? The idea is that every service or every item on the market has a market price, and you know, even if you promise to give someone a goat or to sing at their kid's birthday party, if you fail to live up to your obligations, then a certain sum of money could compensate the, uh, the, the other party for that. That's not too controversial. Uh, you know, if they don't give you the goat, then you can get enough money to go buy a goat. So it works out pretty well. It's the idea of restitution. Right? Now, there are some exceptions to this. Um, uh, uh, certain goods that are unique, like a piece of land. Okay? You, uh, the idea is that a piece of land, you have to, the courts will enforce uh, that kind of contract. They will make the land transfer to the guy that it was promised to because the, the land is unique and where it's located, etc. Um, okay, so, so we're, we're, there's really not a big problem with the idea of paying off a debt in money. But then the question is how much money? Okay? And this is what legal tender laws almost always do. They specify fixed exchange rates. Okay, this is what the government's after. If the government merely said you can pay off any contract in, but in dollars. Okay, so if you have a contract in Swiss francs, well, you're paid in dollars, but you're paid in enough dollars that's equal to that current value of Swiss francs. So you just go buy the Swiss francs right after the deal's over. It's just a little inconvenience. It's not a big deal. Of course, that's not what the government wants. The government wants to favor debtors, usually itself. Usually, the, the government is a big debtor. So what they want to do is specify an exchange rate that lets you pay off the debt at overvalued legal tender money. Okay, so it's a way of robbing the creditors. Okay, now this this gives rise to a phenomenon called Gresham's law. I'm not going to do too much economics here, but raise your hands if you have never heard of Gresham's law. Okay, um, I'm not going to ask the rest if you understand it. <laughs> Um, so Gresham's Law is simply uh, based upon the expression by, I think, Irving Fisher, an economist, who said uh, bad money drives out good money. Um, now this is a little counterintuitive because usually on the free market, good products drive out bad products, right? Like Blackberry is tanking now and the iPhone is doing well. That's maybe one example. Um, and even in money, right? Gold and silver arise as money instead of shells or leaves or cigarettes because they're superior. They're better money. So really, on the free market, we can expect good products and good money to drive out bad products and bad money, right? So really what Gresham's Law is, it's really not that bad money drives out good money, it's that legally overvalued money drives out legally undervalued money. Let me give an example of this, okay? Imagine on the free market, um, the, the ratio of silver and gold prices is 20 ounces of silver to one ounce of gold, okay? So they're roughly equivalent on the market. So if you're offering to sell something for 20 ounces of silver, if the guy pays you an ounce of gold, you'll take that because they're roughly equivalent. Now, the government comes in and establishes legal tender and says that uh, one ounce of gold is equal to 40 ounces of silver. So you can see that in this case, what the government has done is they, they've made gold legally overvalued and silver legally undervalued. Okay? So if I, if I owe someone 20 ounces of silver, I can pay them 20 ounces of silver, which is worth an ounce of gold on the market, or I can take my ounce of gold and go take half of it and buy 20 ounces of silver and pay off the guy that way, right? So it lets me stiff the guy. So what this results in is no one's going to use silver anymore because they're going to be, be stiffed by this provision. 
So it would drive out the good money, which would be silver in this case. Now in this particular example, what would happen is that you would have a system where previously silver is used for small change and gold is used for, for big, big purchases, right? But now if silver disappears, you only have gold. So what do people start doing for small purchases? Well, they start resorting to substitutes like tokens, coins, banknotes, etc. See where this is going? The government gets us used to paper money and things that don't really have, a, I won't say an intrinsic value, but a commodity value of their own. Okay. So that's Gresham's law. This is one effect of legal tender laws. Now, on the history of legal tender, uh, let's look at how it started being justified by the state, say, in England. So the crown, the crown would say, listen, if you're coming to the state's courts to enforce a contract, you're seeking justice from the, the king's courts, then you have to submit to conditions we want to place on you. So if we say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we're going to help you enforce your contract, but we're going to insist that you take payment in legal tender uh, that we decree at a certain exchange ratio. Now, actually, if you think about it, this is selling justice. The courts are using their, their uh, the, the, the government is using its courts to sell justice, to make a profit off of monopolizing the institution of justice and then selling the service, which actually is a violation of the Magna Carta uh, uh, from 1215. In the Magna Carta, the, uh, the Crown agreed to the, to the Magna Carta, which had a revision that says uh, in, in Latin, I won't read the Latin, but it, the translation is, to no one will we sell, to no one will we refuse or, to de or delay right or justice. So they're not supposed to sell justice, but they do it anyway with these, with these, uh, um, with these uh, legal tender laws, which is one danger of the government controlling the courts and the law and, and uh, the justice system. Now let's turn to the U.S. now. In the colonies before, uh, uh, before the, uh, the revolution, coins were scarce. You know, they couldn't bring a lot of uh, coins on the ships over with them. Maybe they didn't have a lot of coins anyway. So they started using substitutes, and these were declared legal tender by the various state the colonies, the colony governments. Um, some of you may have heard of wampum before. I never knew what wampum was, but wampum is the shell bead money that the Native Americans used. Those were legal tender. Black was worth something, white was worth something else. It was bizarre. Uh, other things have been used for money, legal tender, corn, bullets, although you could only give someone so many bullets, force them to take so many bullets, tobacco, pitch, tar, pork, and even country produce. You can pay your servants with country produce. Um, in the year 1715, up to 17 commodities were legal tender to pay taxes in the colonies. Okay? Now, look, I've got these a little bit out of order. Uh, in, in 1775, Right before the Revolutionary War, Congress was planning for war. They knew war was coming. They needed to raise money. They knew that they, they didn't have any credibility as a new government to raise money by loans, and they didn't have taxing power. They couldn't raise a lot of taxes uh, anyway. So what they did was they started issuing bills of credit, but they were declared to be payable by the states. So they expected the states to go out and raise taxes on their citizens with their taxing power, or the colonies, I should say. Um, well, I guess there were states by then. Um, and pay off the, the bills that way. Uh, but Massachusetts and other states refused to do this. They started issuing their own bills of credit and, it, and making them legal tender, okay? And th this language here is striking. It shows you how seriously the government takes its monopoly over money in these legal tender laws. They said that if anyone refuses to these notes and payment for a debt, or even if you demand a premium, in other words, you think gold is better than a note that's denominated in gold, but they really can't be redeemed in gold. If you demand a premium, like you say, I'll, I'll take that note for a 10% discount because there's a risk. That's illegal too. And you would actually be deemed an enemy of the country. And other states like Virginia, New Hampshire, Rhode Island had similar, similar laws. Now in 1781, turning to my top bullet there, um, 
So the Articles of Confederation were finally uh, ratified, and it wasn't clear that Congress was granted the power to define legal tender. It, re it remained with the states. Okay. Turn, turn forward a few years after the war is over. Constitution is ratified, 1789. Everything flips. The states are denied the power to to coin money, and Congress is granted the power to be the one in charge of legal tender, et cetera. Well, this was settled in Supreme Court cases later, but it's pretty clear now. So right after this, Congress passes an act, 1792, all gold and silver coins which shall have been struck and issued from a mint shall be lawful tender in all payments. And then there's a 1965 act which has similar provisions. So that's where we are now. Now let's turn to, um, I've already talked about this. Let's turn to um, uh, the use of gold and gold clauses. So how could the state, say the US, cut the tide of gold? Well, one, that, one way they could do it is they could set the exchange rate that's not market, like using Gresham's laws, we mentioned before, which is what the state did for a while. Uh, you know, they, they keep changing the exchange rate of gold. It used to be one, uh, one, uh, $1 or 20th of an ounce of gold, then it was 30, 1 35th, and nowadays it's, it's a market rate. Um, so just quickly go through the history of gold and gold clauses. 1933, Franklin Roosevelt issues an executive order criminalizing the possession of gold in the U.S., monetary gold. So gold was seized by the government and outlawed. And right after that, the Congress uh, under Roosevelt outlawed um, gold clauses. A gold clause is a clause in a contract where if you're afraid of inflation in the dollar, you can say, you owe me a million dollars, um, well, you owe me whatever the current dollar amount of 100 ounces of gold is in 10 years or whatever the term of the deal is. That way, if there's inflation, you have to get dollars, you can pay in dollars in the current, uh, pegged to the price of gold. So they were out. They outlawed that, of course, because uh, that's one way to do an end run around the government's legal tender system. Um, now, in 1974, under President Ford, the ban on gold ownership was finally repealed. 1977, under Carter, gold clauses were re-legalized for contracts enact, entered after October 1977, and Nixon cut the tie to gold. Okay, so in this time, all three things happened. The dollar is no longer redeemable in gold. There's no ratio anymore. So the question is, do we still have legal tender in the U.S.? In a way, I think we do not have legal tender, right? Because you can have a gold clause. You can peg your contract in gold. It's not illegal. You can own gold, and the dollar doesn't have any fixed ratio. It just fluctuates. So why isn't it just a mere inconvenience now? Well, in a way, it is. So why hasn't gold reemerged as money? Well, there's various possible reasons why it hasn't. One might be that the dollar is not perceived by most people as being in a stage of hyperinflation, so there's no big urgency to use gold clauses. Uh, there's also Mises' regression theory, which is the idea that money arises step by step and always has a history. So once something, it's like a network effect, like Facebook is more popular than Google Plus right now, right? So it's the same idea. Once something is money, people keep using it unless something terrible happens. Also, gold is subject to trend, uh, taxes, sales tax and other types of taxes, which money is not. Um, taxes have to be paid in dollars, too. That could be another reason. And finally, there could be fear of another state takeover. Like, you know, if gold clauses ever had an effect, the state wouldn't let us use them. They only let us do things that don't really threaten them. Okay. Now, so getting to Bitcoin here. What's the implications for Bitcoin? Okay, first let's step back and think what gold clauses are, and what, there's two types of monetary transactions that you can think about that are relevant to legal tender. One is what's called an executed, or maybe a, uh, uh, a, contemporary, a contemporaneous transaction. 
For example, I walk up to a merchant and I say, I'd like to buy that newspaper. He says, give me a dollar, and I make the deal. It's done, it's done right there. There's no future obligations on either party. Um, the second type is an executory contract, sometimes called executory contract. That's one where there's an obligation in the future. Okay? So we have a contract now. You know, it, I want you to build a house for me, and when you're done building the house, I will pay you $500,000. Okay? That's an executory contract. And at the end of the contract, the work done by the, the service provider, if he's not paid, he could sue in court to get the money he's owed. Okay? And legal tender law kicks in only there because the obligation to pay him can be satisfied in whatever money the government declares to be legal tender. So legal tender laws never have much of an effect on contemporaneous transactions because if you walk up to some guy and he, he wants the artificial price for his goods, you just refuse to pay it and you walk away. You don't do the deal. So legal tender laws only affect the second type of contract. Now, as far as I'm aware, I think Bitcoin, from what I've seen, is used mostly for the first type of contract right now. Okay? I'm not, aware of a, I'm not even aware of a lot of gold clause contracts, much less I'm aware, I'm aware of the practice of people entering into long-term significant contracts with Bitcoin clauses or denominated in Bitcoins. So, you know, like in, uh, not even an employment contract, but a longer-term contract, like let's say a loan. Okay? Uh, I loan you 1,000 Bitcoins, you need to repay me 1,100 Bitcoins in, in a year, something like that. Uh, for Bitcoin to emerge as a full-fledged money, it seems to me it needs to be start being used for the second type of monetary transaction as well. And I suspect that it will uh, as it gains steam. And when it does, the relevance of this legal tender discussion is that the state can do what it has done before with the gold clauses. It could outlaw Bitcoin clauses, okay, or any, they would have to find a way to define it so that it covers Litecoin and others as well, right? Any kind of electronic currency. Um, and they'd probably re-legalize gold clauses while they were at it. Um, and then the other way, they, they, could, they could declare a fiat exchange rate. They could say $1 is equal to one Bitcoin, right? They could do something like that. They would legally over, overvalue the dollar, legally undervalue Bitcoin. Um, so this is, uh, I'll, I'll conclude here, this is the relevance of legal tender law. This is where I think it could be heading, and the Bitcoin community needs to be aware of this and try to uh, uh, keep an eye on the government. Thank you very much. Be unconstitutional under the uh, under the Constitution's prohibition of states interfering in that, or at least be illegal because the government has preempted the field by le by de determining what legal tender is. I can't imagine that would survive a challenge in the federal courts. The uh, state we're in right now, I know, does not tax uh, gold and silver. So uh, uh, obviously, coin coin shops. Operating along, along the uh, Georgia border, you know, have residents from Tennessee that come across to convert your fiat into uh, gold and silver for, uh, you know, uh, savings. Um, the vendors in Georgia have that advantage. I remember that's one thing you spoke about is the some of the states are taxing the sale of gold and silver, and that's something we're looking at 
pushing back against in the state of Tennessee to get that fixed? Well, I, yeah, I do think for, for gold, say, to, uh, to uh, ever become money again, we have to remove these obstacles. Tax is one. Of course, there's still federal capital gains tax, which would apply. Um, and who knows, maybe the government's going to start trying to tax, the, the states that tax gold sales might start trying to tax Bitcoin sales, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Stephen. Um, I think it's very interesting, this question of uh, legal tender laws, because fundamentally it, it's only relevant if you're dependent on the state to enforce contracts. It's completely irrelevant if you no longer are dependent on the state for the enforcement of contracts. So I guess it's not so much a question as, as it is uh, something food for thought. Um, what does happen when we're no longer dependent on the state for the enforcement of contracts? No, I absolutely agree, and I think if we can come up with private arbitration measures or even some kind of anonymous contract enforcement system, that would be one way to severely hamper the government's ability to impose legal tender because, as I said, they do it primarily through these executory contracts enforcement. Um, a, a lot of the, of course, larger, more established, bigger companies play it very safe and very conservative, and they're going to be very reluctant to opt out of the state system at the current time, I think. So that's going to slow the adoption rate. But uh, yeah, I agree. That's our hope is that we can go to alternative systems. Uh, there's a, a group called Judge.me, which I'm signed up to be an arbitrator for, which we're trying to do things like that. But it's still in the infancy, and it's still uncertain, of course. Yeah, so at the beginning you mentioned, you know, um, if somebody's got a contract and you pay for a million dollars, like you said, like, can I refuse a million dollars cash? Yeah. And I don't think you can answer that during your speech. So, like, if somebody wants to pay for a million dollars cash, can you say no, give me a check? I actually was unable to find an answer when I did it back in 24 years ago. Uh, but since then, I've researched it, and my understanding is that um, you, you can. It's hard to find. The problem is, uh, well, not the problem. The good thing about a relatively free society is that we live, we don't live by permission. We don't live like in the Soviet Union where everything that is, everything that's not permitted is forbidden. It's supposed to be the other way around, right? We have islands of restrictions and an ocean of liberty. We're supposed to have that, right? So if you can't find a restriction in the law on some activity, then the presumption is you're free to do it. And I couldn't find a restriction, but you never know if you've exhaustively looked at every one of the 17 shelf feet of Federal Register rules. So I couldn't find a restriction, so my conclusion was I think you can do this. But in, in the meantime, I've researched it, and it looks like it's pretty clear that you can. You can refuse a mode of payment. If like, it's too dangerous to receive a briefcase of cash, you're not really refusing dollars. You're just refusing the mode of payment. So I believe that you can refuse it. Of course, you could specify the contract ahead of time. Look, you have to pay me some regular safe method of you know, cashier's check or a wire, wire transfer. I mean, when you close on a house, quite often they'll insist on a cashier's check. You show up with a personal check. They will take it. That's not really a violation of legal tender law. Hi, I wanted to ask you a question that I heard you ask recently at the Property and Freedom Society uh, about the Rothbardian conception of property rights in which all rights are property rights and all crimes are violations of property rights. Because it seems like in the Bitcoin space, either a, a passive observer of a Bitcoin user, of a careless Bitcoin user, or else some really smart mathematician can transfer someone's Bitcoins involuntarily. Uh, would you describe this as stealing? And do we need to rethink our version of property rights into something that has more to do with societal norms? So I, <clears throat> this is my amateur opinion on this, my layman's opinion. I know there are experts on how Bitcoin works, its standards, uh, the code, more than I am. From what I've been told uh, by people that know a lot more about Bitcoin 
than I do, like you. Um, uh, it's actually not a violation of the rules of Bitcoin to somehow discover someone's private key and, and use that to take Bitcoins from their account. For it to be against the rules, you would have to have you know, clicked on the terms of service or something like you do, but that's contrary to the purpose of Bitcoin being pseudonymous, right? So I don't believe there's any terms of service anyone agrees to. So it's actually not prohibited by any sort of rules that anyone agrees to. And it's not a property right because a Bitcoin is not a scarce resource. It's a ledger entry. It's just it's, it's a distributed system that people agree to to use because it's useful, and it basically associates some accounts with others, and that can be useful. So I don't believe there's a property right in it. I think it's analogous to property rights the way it works, and it may be even better than some property rights the way it works in terms of practical reliability on it. Um, so whether norms would arise that 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 you know people point their finger and they they uh, at people that that somehow were able to do that. Because it's so secure, the only way I can think of doing it would be uh, some kind of social engineering anyway. I, I don't know how they're going to guess someone's private key or get it. Now, if you break into someone's computer, you hack their computer, or you break into their home to get their keys, then that should be a crime because you're trespassing against their actual own property in order to get the information. And then what you do with the information would be a measure of the damages that's owed to the victim of the trespass. But um, I don't view Bitcoin as property, a property right, but I don't mean that as a criticism. I don't think that's a, a, a negative thing or a bad thing. Thank you very much. So as we head to lunch, a couple of things to think about. You need to take anything that's valuable with you, computers, Bitcoin, uh, take it with you. The, um, the hotel here has a wonderful restaurant and I highly recommend the tomato soup. If you are alone for lunch and you're sad about that, just turn to the person next to you and invite yourself. I guarantee you there is no one in this room who is uninteresting. So you'll have a wonderful one. Thank you, see you at 1.30. Peter Serda, it's coming. <laughs>